four Sunday morning studying the book of Philippians together. While finding our way there, just a reminder, if you don't have a Bible this morning, just flag one of these guys coming up the aisles. They'll get you a Bible into your hand and you can hear the word and read it as well. And on Sunday nights, we go through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, currently studying uh, in the uh, latter couple chapters of John's Gospel tonight at six o'clock and each of you are invited. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes by the Holy Spirit, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though surely you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am in to be content. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned how to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Father, so often is the case, um, certainly increasingly in our country, and, but in the world as well, we come to a truth that what you have to say about it is very different from the message that we hear all day, every day of our lives in this Western culture. And we pray, Lord, that you would bring your perspective not only to bear upon our minds, but upon the doing and the decision-making in our lives, what captures our hearts. And, and so we pray that you take your word that's going to outlast the heavens and the earth, that's going to have the final say in every human life and in all of human history. And Lord, that you and your truth would prevail in this important part of our life as well. We thank you that you're a father. Thank you that you're a father who speaks and instructs. So many of us raised with so little instruction and we needed it so desperately. We're glad that we have a heavenly father that speaks into our lives and never fails to tell us the truth and in a way that always breathes hope into every situation in our life. Bless us now, we pray, as we study your word and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As the Apostle Paul here in chapter 4 begins now in earnest to bring this letter to a conclusion, uh, he returns to one of the main reasons for which he wrote the letter, and that was to say thank you to the church at Philippi for uh, bringing a financial gift to him by way of their messenger Epaphroditus to him, a financial gift to him while he was imprisoned there in uh, the city of Rome. And uh, he had uh, broached that subject earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, but now the letter wouldn't be complete unless he enlarged upon that subject. And so uh, he writes to them in this way. We remember that in the ancient world, um, the governments of the ancient world did not feel compelled to feed and clothe their prisoners. Uh, you were dependent almost entirely upon friends or family members who were on the outside uh, to bring those things to you, to bring you uh, financial uh, resources to be able to keep yourself fed and clothed. And so the gift would have been important to Paul as he's imprisoned there uh, in the city of Rome. And so now he, uh, in expressing this thanks to them, 
uh, the fact that he is enlarged upon it late in this letter is really, I think, wonderful to our benefit and our edification. You notice that he expresses his gratitude there in verse 10, is genuinely thankful for their financial support, and he expressed that, teaching us that whenever anybody has taken the time to bless us with a gift of some kind, it's always important to show, um, at least in a minimal way, uh, gratitude by writing a thank you note or uh, conveying thanksgiving. That's what he does here and what he models for us. And uh, I say that on behalf of my mother, who was a stickler on that issue. Uh, but beyond that in the passage, we notice that he is communicating that their financial gift produced joy in him. It was an encouragement uh, to him. Sometimes when people give us a gift that's kind of uh, humble, uh, they might even be a little embarrassed at uh, the simplicity of the gift that they give to us. Uh, they will say something like, it isn't the gift uh, but the thought that counts most. And, um, and, and that's a truth in life. For the Apostle Paul, it wasn't the financial, it wasn't the amount of money, however much it was or how little it was. The greatest thing that the gift did for him was it encouraged him. Uh, it let him know that people loved him, cared about him, they hadn't forgotten about him while he remained imprisoned in uh, in Rome. And that's not just true of smaller gifts or humbler gifts. It's true of any gift of any size. The greatest value of any gift is, is the thought that's behind it and what is expressed by the person in uh, giving, that, uh, giving that gift. And so uh, this gift was a great blessing to him and he wanted to let them know. When he talked about their giving uh, flourishing again uh, to him, that word flourished, it means literally uh, to cause to blossom again. So here we are in the spring of the year. Uh, the rains and, and the cloudiness has kind of uh, gone into the rearview mirror a little bit. And so everything is budding out. Everything is uh, blossoming. And so just as the plants and the blossoms and flowers birth it, uh, burst into bloom after a long winter, uh, so too, Paul said, their gift brought uh, real, uh, a touch of spring, so to speak, into this winter season of his, uh, his imprisonment. He spoke to them and he, in terms of the fact that it had been some time since they had given him, a, a, the, received a previous gift from them. He said, surely you did, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. So there was a, a length of time, probably years between the time that Paul had received the previous gift from them. They had given to him repeatedly, as we'll see next week. Uh, but some space of time between the last gift and this gift, and, uh, and he recognized it wasn't because they had ceased caring about him, but, but because they lacked opportunity. Somehow circumstances made it difficult. Perhaps um, they were in a place where, as a fellowship, they couldn't afford to give something 
to the Apostle Paul. Or the Apostle Paul might have been uh, very difficult to kind of hunt down as he was arrested in Jerusalem, then taken to Caesarea, imprisoned there for a couple of years, then sent to Rome, shipwrecked now in Rome, and now imprisoned in Rome. And they might have thought, well, finally he's going to be in one place for a little while and we can get a gift to him. But uh, somehow the circumstances didn't allow for it. In, in verse 11, he thanks them, but he declares, not that I speak in regard to need. So again, the greatest blessing of the gift was not that it met a need in his life, not a material need, but uh, it was that expression of love for him uh, that impacted him the most. I think it's important for us to recognize that the Apostle Paul isn't being rude here in any way. He's not saying, as, as someone could read it and maybe think, thank you for the gift, but I really didn't need it at all. Uh, what kind of a thank you gift would that be? Uh, and certainly we wouldn't expect it of the Apostle Paul here. But we see in the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul was very careful about money. Very careful uh, about it. And uh, <clears throat> here's his concern on full display, <clears throat> excuse me, not to use his position or to use his ministry as a means to solicit financial support uh, from any of the churches that he had uh, established. He's very careful about that. He didn't want them because they had sent this gift and now he was thanking them for this gift. He didn't want them to think that this was a manipulation mechanism on his part, that he is now uh, trying to draw them into a regular or a continued giving uh, to him in, uh, in, his, uh, in his life. And so that wasn't the purpose of his, his letter. Notice, too, that even as he thanks them, he never quite thanks them, <clears throat> but rather he declares... I rejoiced in the Lord uh, greatly. And so he saw the gift, though given by Christians, um, and he recognized the sacrifice on their part in giving that. He saw the gift first and foremost as from God. And then he saw them as being used by God to provide the gift. It's not that he didn't love them or appreciate them. I mean, his expressions of love for them uh, fill the entire uh, epistle here. And, uh, but when it came to money, he's very, very careful about it. Not only did he not want to be uh, clumped together with uh, a group of people that existed in large numbers in the ancient world, and they exist in large numbers even in the modern world, uh, religious and philosophical charlatans that would travel in the ancient world, and, and they were in it solely uh, for the money. And, uh, and, and Paul did not want to be identified with them or to think uh, anyone think of him uh, with them in the same thought. You think that how, how in the world would anybody think that the Apostle Paul was a religious charlatan and that he was in the ministry for the money, given all the sacrifice that he went through and the hardship? The interesting thing is there were Christians in the city of Corinth in the church in Corinth, who accused him of that very thing. But he also the Apostle Paul, as we see in his letters, and we see it here, he was fiercely independent 
Uh, He did not want anyone, not even these Christians that he loved so much in uh, Philippi, to think that he was either dependent upon them in his ministry or that he was motivated by their giving to him uh, in his ministry. Uh, Most Christians give, uh, whether to a church or to the Lord and giving to a church or uh, giving to another person individually, most Christians uh, give out of a pure heart. But there are some who give and then they expect the person that they give to to be indebted to them in some way. There is always a string attached. And you always feel that by now receiving this gift from them, uh, that they feel that we are now in, in their debt. It complicates our thinking. We're no longer free to just think, what does God want to, me to do here in this situation? But now our um, thinking becomes triangulated. What does God want me to do here? And I wonder how uh, this person will see that. And the, and the Apostle Paul, uh, it, it, at the cost of anything, did not want to have that be a part of his life. And no gift that anybody could give him in his life uh, was worth that being introduced into his, his ministry in Uh, in his mind and so he wanted to avoid this and uh, and and to protect his continued independence just to hear the Lord without complication so in part he's it's a very delicate way of him saying I joyfully receive uh, this gift as from the Lord uh, but I do receive it without any strings uh, attached you then notice in the latter part of verse 11 having expressed his gratitude to them, the Apostle Paul then shifts to uh, enlarging upon the subject of contentment. In chapter 4, we've already uh, examined two great threats to joy in the Christian uh, Christian's life. Uh, one is worry. The other is a uh, poorly directed mind. And uh, discontent ranks uh, up uh, right near the top uh, with them. Contentment has been called a rare jewel in the human condition. And and when it's spoken of as the rare jewel in the human condition, uh, it speaks of contentment in in three specific ways. First, contentment is priceless in its value in a human life. Uh, Second, it speaks of its rarity in the human condition. And then third, it speaks of its beauty, and the truth of it is uh, apparent to all of us. How truly rare, uh, if we were to stop and think about it, how truly rare is the truly contented person uh, in life. And then how beautiful uh, the human life is that uh, possesses this as a virtue, and then how valuable this trait is to them. It makes them richer than all of the people who possess so much more than they do uh, materially, but then lack that contentment. The Bible commends contentment in our lives as Christians from one end of of the book uh, to the other. Here's a cross-section of a handful of passages. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul writes to Timothy, but godliness with contentment is great gain. 
For we brought nothing into the world, and it's certain we shall carry nothing out. What? Yes, it is. It's certain that we will carry nothing out. And, ha and, and therefore, having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. And so, uh, contentment <clears throat> is referred to here uh, as gain, as something that makes a person truly uh, wealthy uh, in life. And that's a needed reminder for us uh, in a world and in a country where uh, almost always wealth is defined in terms of material things. The writer of the book of Hebrews uh, wrote, chapter 13, verse 5, Let your conduct be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For he himself, that is the Lord, has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so we may boldly come and say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? Jesus taught, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things uh, that he possesses. Anybody else hearing the entire collapse of the United States economy? Uh, Jesus also spoke to the soldiers in his day when they asked him, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. I do think it's important to understand what uh, neither Paul nor the Bible is saying uh, 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 is condemning in this regard. It is not condemning God-given uh, ambitions in life. Uh, the contentment that the Bible talks about is never intended to negate that. Uh, it, it is not advocating for uh, inaction uh, on our part in situations that can be improved and need to be improved in life, whether it is societal and on that level or whether it is uh, individual in our own lives uh, and personal. It is condemning content, uh, discontentment that's born out of covetousness. When the ungodly uh, desire for more becomes the master passion uh, in my life, when I, I live in my dreams and every thought in my waking hour or the majority of thoughts in my uh, waking life is thinking about the next thing that I uh, want the next thing that I think will bring satisfaction to my life. It's condemning the idea that life can be found, contrary to what Jesus said, that it can be found in the abundance of the material things we possess, whether those are uh, physical material possessions or whether it is in relationships with other people or in power. And it condemns the idea that contentment can ever be found solely uh, in the physical realm. And the Bible's call to contentment is vital for us to remember because we live in a culture that is dominated by covetousness, that teaches us that life is found in the abundance of the material things that, that we possess. And so we face this nonstop barrage uh, ver and, and virtually filling every waking hour of our lives. 
an unending barrage of advertisements specifically designed to sell us something by making us discontent with what we currently possess and, uh, and, and who and what we are physically, what our bodies look like, and, and so forth. And so you see this, this high level of uh, personal debt that dominates uh, the, the average citizen in the United States of America, for example, it witnesses to the effectiveness, not always, but it witnesses to the effectiveness uh, of this, uh, 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 this covetousness that is so nurtured within our culture. And so we ask ourselves the question before we proceed any further, before God, as God is my witness, is my life marked by contentment and you just take a moment the privacy of our hearts to just ask myself that because um, how seriously I will take the teaching and Paul's solution related to this the Holy Spirit solution will depend upon whether I recognize this or look at this as some kind of a theoretical thing that is merely cultural or does it where am I on the spectrum in terms of of contentment in terms of, of covetousness. Now, Paul writes, for I have learned, and when he writes it, for I have learned in whatever state uh, I am to be content. The word that he uses for content there, it means to be self-sufficient. But, but that can be misleading. It's with the idea of being satisfied with what I have and the circumstances I find myself in and I consider them to be sufficient in my life. It wasn't that the Apostle Paul possessed all of the uh, material possessions that he might possess in life, but counting as he did contentment to be one of the great blessings, one of the great riches that a person can possess in, in life in terms of peace and joy, he determined to live a life of contentment independent of how many material things he had or he did not have. And so Paul ascribed to the idea that the truly rich person is not the person who has the most, but the person who can get by with the least and then be content in that state in terms of joy, in terms of peace, in terms of the true riches in life, that is the person who is uh, truly, uh, truly uh, rich. And so a simple life is an independent life, uh, leaving time uh, for other things that are more important in life than material things. For instance, the two great commandments in life, as Jesus said, we're to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbors, uh, neighbors as our neighbor as ourselves. Without an understanding uh, related to contentment here in a, a materialistic society, the temptation will be to accumulate just enough material things that it takes all of my time to keep track of and maintain my material things. And, and it crowds out all of the true priorities and the true riches and what is most important uh, in life. And that's what's in play, far greater than uh, material or physical debt that we 
might find ourselves uh, in. And so uh, necessity and the scarceness of time in each of our lives uh, then becomes the determinant in our lives concerning material things. We determine I'm going to get enough things until I look and I say, I don't have enough time to take care of all these things. And, and in a materialistic society, that becomes the determining factor. And, uh, uh, and, and as opposed to uh, the vastly superior determinant of, of contentment uh, in, my, uh, in my life. You notice in verse 11 that Paul declared that this kind of contentment in life was something that he learned. So that tells us something that's important is that, the, is that the Apostle Paul did not always possess this contentment in his life. It was something that he learned. Well, that gives us hope in our, in our own personal lives. The Apostle Paul was probably raised in, uh, in uh, if, if not uh, absolute affluence, he was probably raised in a materially pretty affluent uh, situation uh, growing up by virtue of the education that he had, uh, the, the uh, opportunities that were given to him by, uh, by his family, and, uh, and so he hadn't always known this contentment. It tells us also that contentment doesn't just happen in a person's life. If a person just looks and says, all right, uh, Lord, I heard that sermon on contentment, and if you want to do that in my life, I give you permission to do it. Uh, it's not going to just happen in our lives. It has to be something where we look at it and we say, that's attractive to me. That's appealing to me. I see the, the wisdom of it. I see the quality of life that, that it produces. And I want to learn this. And to even, in, again, in the privacy of our heart, to look and say, I am very far from learning this in my life. But I want to learn it. And it can be uh, learned. It also teaches us that contentment will never ever be achieved uh, by finally buying or possessing everything that I want in life. If it came that way, then it wouldn't need to be learned. The fact that it is something that is learned in life tells us uh, that it isn't something that's purchased in life or something that comes by some other means. And so uh, all of this, this contentment, it, it, it wasn't natural to the Apostle Paul. It isn't natural uh, to any of us uh, at all. It's something Paul had to learn, and so do we. When Paul declares uh, about this contentment in his life and that he had learned to become content, uh, it, it, the, the word I that he uses to refer to himself there, in the original language, it's emphatic. In other words, the, the, the idea of the word is I have learned, and the idea is whether uh, or not others have learned it, I have learned it. And that communicates to us that every single person that learns contentment, that we have to learn it uh, on our own. Uh, that's an individual decision that occurs uh, within our lives. No one can learn it for another person. And for a person to learn contentment and desire to learn contentment, 
in a culture that is materialistic and as covetous as ours is, it means that typically we're going to, uh, in making contentment something we want to learn, we're going to be a minuscule minority, even within our family or our peers or a workplace or wherever it might be. And there has to be the acceptance of that and the recognition of it in making it that kind of a priority. The word learned that Paul uses there in verse 11, it speaks of something that is learned by experience. He said, I have learned this as a byproduct of life experiences that I've, I've had. I've learned it by experience. So that raises the question, how then does one learn this contentment by experience? And he tells us in verse 12, by e- experiencing material abasement, uh, lowliness, material uh, humbleness, where people look at our lives and say, how in the world can they get by on that? Or how in the world can uh, they be content with that? So uh, experiencing material abasement and then uh, material abundance, plenty in our lives and everything in between. By experiencing fullness and hunger in life, everything in between, and then by experiencing seasons of material abundance and and great need in life and everything in between as he lays those things out. Now, one of the great things about the Apostle Paul in speaking about uh, contentment um, is uh, that he has, um, he has the street cred to be able to uh, do that uh, as he would write about the possibility of living a life of, of contentment, and it is a possibility. So Paul isn't waxing uh, philosophical here. He isn't in some kind of an ivory tower uh, telling us how to do something that we would look at his life and say, physician, heal thyself. Uh, 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 in his present condition, as he writes this, he is imprisoned in Rome, unjustly imprisoned in Rome. And he is 24 hours a day shackled to a Roman soldier in that house arrest. His larger ministry experience uh, that he uh, was uh, prodded into boasting about because of the attack of the uh, the Christians in Corinth uh, 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 against him, uh, he, he wrote to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, he said, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. <gasps> a night and a day I have spent in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of water, in perils of robbers in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentile, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness, in toil, in sleeplessness, sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, beside the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all uh, the churches. And so Paul makes it, absolutely impossible 
for any Christian to just dismiss him when he writes of contentment being something that can be learned and experienced no matter what ex- uh, 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 circumstances we might find ourselves in, in in life. And then finally, in verses 12 and 13, Paul reveals to us the most important thing of all, that all of these highs and lows uh, in life, materially speaking, they initiated him into uh, the great secret concerning uh, contentedness. You notice that Paul uses the word learned in verse 11, and then he uses the word learned once again in verse 12. They are identical in the English language, but he uses two entirely different Greek words uh, when he he uses those two words uh, learned. In verse 11, the word Paul uses means to learn or instruction uh, by experience, as as I mentioned. In verse 12, the word Paul uh, uses, it means to be initiated into a secret. Now, in ancient In the ancient world, there were many, many secret societies. Uh, There are secret societies today, like the Masons and and others uh, as well. And to be initiated into these uh, secret societies usually meant going through some kind of a secret rite uh, or by having some secret revealed to you. And so here the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, he just simply borrows a word from the culture that everyone in the culture was familiar with, and he applied it to contentment. And what he's saying here uh, is that this kind of contentment, and uh, in, in possessing it in every circumstance that we might find ourselves in life, he says very few have been initiated into this club. Very few people know the secret of being initiated into contentment, and now I'm going to tell you how to do that. Well, he's got me at least, I hope all of us sitting on the edge of our seat, related to that. And then he tells us in verse 13, I can do all things through Christ, who strengthens me. I love the uh, simplicity of the NIV on this. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Now, this verse is a verse that I I don't want to minimize uh, or uh, uh, poo-poo the idea of anybody uh, claiming this in all kinds of circumstances within, uh, within life, but it does have a context that's important to, uh, to understand. And uh, uh, it, it isn't saying or it isn't promising that I'll be able to do whatever I decide to do in life, whatever I choose to put my mind to, and uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so sometimes people will read it like uh, some of the plaque fodder that is out today. Believe in yourself. You are braver than you think, more talented than you know, and capable of more than you can imagine. Fly, Robin, fly! <laughs> I mean, it's just like, 
I'd be embarrassed to buy that plaque. And yet it's a bestseller. I will never and I could never play the guitar like Mike plays the guitar. I will never and I could never sing like Trinity or uh, any of the members of the worship team here at Lucy in, in all, uh, if I gave it my best effort. I sit back there with Pastor Bob in the service because I'm going to go around to come in. Uh, but it's really an act of mercy for anybody sitting in front of me <laughs> in the sanctuary. I have my mother's voice, and uh, it was awful. And, uh, and I got it. I will never and I could never dunk a basketball like David Thompson or Michael Jordan. I could never and I will never shoot a basketball uh, like Steph Curry. Uh, and these are not the kind of things that are under the umbrella of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's being promised here, otherwise I'd be in the NBA and uh, making a fortune and would have never had the privilege of knowing you. What's being promised here has a context. And when Paul uh, wrote that he had learned to be content in whatever state he found himself in, he wasn't talking about the state of California. Whatever state here refers to any physical circumstance he might find himself in within the will of God for his life. And the state that Paul lived in was the will of God for his life. And he certainly couldn't have been content in a state of rebellion against God or living a life of self-will or living a life of active sin. The state that he lived in was in the will of God for his life. And the secret to contentment is found in living in God's will for my life, whatever the circumstances, physically or materially, uh, that they might be. Because of what we then experience with God in His will in those circumstances. The strength that He provides to us. The encouragement that He provides to us. The enabling and power that He provides to us. The communion, the sharing, uh, the relationship that deepens and, and, uh, uh, and, and uh, between us and Him in in that place in our life, the sharing uh, with Christ of his priorities and of his life. Because after all, Jesus alone is uniquely qualified to strengthen us in uh, staying committed to the will of God for our lives, whatever the physical circumstances uh, that that may involve. It was this very life of, of commit, contentment that Paul is commending here that Jesus himself uh, lived. Content in whatever circumstance he found himself in. As long as he knew it was the Father's will for his life. He said in John chapter 6 verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
John chapter 4, verse 34, Jesus said to them, My food, what sustains me, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And then Matthew chapter 26, verse 39, And he went a little further and fell on his face and prayed, saying, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he was content to live such a life, and the only place we will find contentment as well is as we allow him to live his life in and through us in the same way within God's call and will and purposes for each of our lives. So a little plaque that I saw in somebody's office years ago. Somebody was kind enough to do a wood burning of it, and it states simply this, God's will, nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. And it is to discover that there uh, is no better life that we could ever live, whatever the circumstances, because of what happens between us and God in that place in His will. Again, Paul wrote, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. In other words, the richest person in the world is the person who has a personal relationship with God, and then is in God's will in that relationship and for whom that relationship is more important than any material thing in life and then who is content with whatever God chooses to supply to them materially within His will. And the interesting thing about that is only God knows individually what that is for each of our, uh, each of our lives. So often we want a formula. And one of the reasons that we're prone to formulas in any time I'm wanting a formula, typically in my Christian life, is because it's easier to have a relationship with a formula than with God. And so God doesn't give us formulas because it forces us into a relationship with Him and to seek Him about these things. But who can know what's right? The writer in the book of Proverbs, he said... He wrote, two things I request of you, speaking to God, deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. And we recognize the potential for both of those things in our lives. And only God is the one that knows what is just right for us in His will for our lives. And that is the secret of contentment. And, and now Paul has shared it with us that we might uh, find the same contentment in the same place that he found it. In knowing God personally, in being in His will, and then being content whatever He chooses to provide to me materially in His will, out of His wisdom, 
and out of his love. And that's the secret of contentment. That's the initiation into the club of contentment as it goes from being just words on a page to then by the Holy Spirit, Christ who lives in us, working them into a deeper place in our lives so that we can live the same life that he did, not only in all of the other realms in life, but in this area of contentment as well. If you sit here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you will never know contentment until you're in uh, a relationship with God because that's what you've been created for. You can never ever satisfy a spiritual thirst with a physical something. You've been created for a relationship with God and you can pour the whole world into that hole in your life until it's filled and never be satisfied. It can only be satisfied in coming to know Him. And if you have never done that, to realize today you can be saved and forgiven of your sins, begin a relationship with God, God has a will and a plan for your life, and He will take care of you in that will and that plan that He has for your life. And all of it waits for you by simply putting your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Turning from your own way, that's called repentance. Turning from sin and saying, now, I want God, I want His way. And if you've never done that, and you'd like to do that this morning, there'll be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service, and they'd love to pray with you to begin that relationship with God today, which is the start of true contentment in life. If you need prayer for anything in your life this morning, they'd love to pray with you and for you as well. Let's stand together now and we'll close in prayer. Well, Father, again, we're impacted by how lonely your voice is on this issue in our culture. I suppose if we were watching a sporting event or something on TV and saw an ad that just told us to simply be content, uh, we would drop our remote and fall to the floor in shock. Everything builds in the other direction. And we thank you for your voice. We recognize the truth of your word in this, on this important area of life, this important area that so determines the quality of our life, the quality and the experience of our joy and of our peace. And we pray that you would continue to teach us, continue to help us to learn about this that is so important to you. And as we've seen this morning, such a mark of the life of our Savior, we want it to mark our lives as well. Help us to continue to grow in this, Lord. Use our time in your word this morning toward that we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.